The school's land acknowledgement reads, the University of Scranton recognizes and honors the original inhabitants and nations of this land, the Lenape, the Munsee, the Shawnee, and the Susquehannocks. The Napahoking, the Lenape ancestral homeland, includes northeastern Pennsylvania. In November 2022, the University of Scranton hosted a humanities lecture and discussion by Curtis Zuniga, enrolled member of the Delaware Tribe of Indians in Oklahoma and co-founder and co-director of the Lenape Center in New York. In advance of that program, Curtis Zuniga spoke with us by phone about the history of his people. The Lenape are the original people of this area where we both are living. The Lenape, in our language, meaning the original people, the homeland of the Lenape, Lenape Hoking, as we call it. If you if you could imagine a boundary that is established, I'll just use a current map. The foothills of the Catskills Mountains, from where I am right now in the uh, Middle Hudson Valley, Hudson River. You keep going up river uh, past Albany, then you're getting into an area that starts to become the territory of the Haudenosaunee or the Iroquois people. So uh, approximately that area is the furthest north. So you come down the Hudson River and that valley all the way down into New York City. You pick up New York City and all of New Jersey, continuing south, picking up all of uh, more or less eastern Pennsylvania, go past Philadelphia, all the way down into the Delaware Bay, uh, the northern part of the state of Delaware around Wilmington, and then west to about the Susquehanna River. So the Scranton and Wilkes-Barre area is probably uh, right along the westernmost border, although I, I don't like to use that word because we didn't put up fences and walls but that was acknowledged territory for our villages, our hunting areas, and uh, where we grew our crops. Curtis Zuniga, enrolled member of the Delaware Tribe of Indians in Oklahoma and co-founder and co-director of the Lenape Center in New York. Zuniga tells stories that remind us what his people know and understand fundamentally. To be at all, to exist in any way is to be somewhere, and to be somewhere is to be in some kind of place. Place is as requisite as the air we breathe, the ground on which we stand, the bodies we have. We are surrounded by places. We walk over and through them. We live in places, relate to others in them, die in them. Nothing we do is unplaced. How could it be otherwise? How could we fail to recognize this primal fact? So asks Edward Casey of Stony Brook University. Scranton's story, our nation's story, is a multi-year exploration and discussion project at the University of Scranton made possible through a grant from the National Endowment for the Humanities. Scranton's story is made up, of course, of many stories. And there's an interesting way of thinking about place as an inscription 
of a series of community histories and personal histories in space. The project organizers have been exploring the space and place that Scranton is to discover new stories and to tell old stories freshly. And the culmination of their efforts, most appropriately, is the celebration of 25 oral histories prepared as part of the project. Scranton Stories premieres tomorrow, October 27th, at the University of Scranton in the Hope Horn Gallery with a portrait exhibit of the interviewees. Each was photographed in a location in Scranton of deep meaning to them. Their photos, the reasons for selecting those locations, and their videos all create a multi-voice, many-faceted story of us as Scrantonians and as U.S. citizens who have deep hopes for both our city and our nation. These deeply personal tellings connect Scranton's story to our nation's ongoing story that we learn from the organizers. Julie Schumacher-Cohen, project director, and Kimberly Crafton, oral histories coordinator, paid a visit to the WVIA studios to introduce us to these compelling stories and to the people who've told them. Julie Schumacher-Cohen. The Scranton Story, Our Nation's Story Project, is a two-and-a-half-year, multiple aspects in terms of humanities-based programs that we started in 2021 that was funded by the National Endowment for the Humanities. So we're very grateful to that federal support. But the vision around that was really to think about the story of Scranton in reference to the story of the nation. And we are coming up to 250 years of the nation, so the anniversary. Who are we as Scrantonians and who are we as the nation? And how can we foster democracy and form a more perfect union, which sounds like a very big question, but really I think it's a very local question. And so uh, part of the, the purpose of the project was to think about all the different aspects of Scranton's history and its future, and especially undertold stories of that. So, so thinking about the black history of Scranton and the black experience, the recent immigrants and refugees, the indigenous experience that you had on your program last fall, Curtis Azuniga of the Delaware Tribe and the Lenape Center. So so that's been the big picture and we've, we've journeyed along through all different themes. We've talked about, of course, the industrial heritage of the area and including focusing on the role of women in the garment industry. So always kind of touching on stories and aspects that may not have been highlighted as much or at least we could explore further, but always coming back to you know who we are as Scrantonians and then culminating with this project. Kimberly, how did you and Julie conceive of the oral history aspect of this project overall? Has it taken shape as you've come to understand more about Scranton and its stories going along? Well, I think the idea of trying to tell the story of a, of a city as interesting historically and currently as Scranton is and to try to do that in 25 stories is a really difficult idea. And the whole idea of that immediately felt exclusive. And that was the exact opposite of what we wanted to do. We wanted this to be a very inclusive project. So I think something that we did not foresee was, was the steps that we would take to try to make it as inclusive as possible. So that by the time we get to the telling of these 25 stories, it felt like a celebration rather than, you know, hey, why wasn't my story told? So there are never enough ways that we as Scrantonians have ever told our stories. 
So in, in addition to the 25 stories and in addition to the steps that we took early in the project to try to invite people to add their voices to this kind of multi-voice conversation about who are we as Scrantonians and what do we yet have to say about the you know our role in the future of our country, we also really looked at how do we help bring forward the stories that people have told about Scranton before. So kind of creating almost a clearinghouse of, of information is um, something that we're also doing, making sure that people have ways to see projects that have been told in the past of Scranton's stories, many, many stories, and uh, current projects going on as well, like podcasts and, and other interview projects and even portrait projects and things like that. So we're we're trying to, to be as inclusive in the idea of Scranton stories as we can, knowing that we're certainly not the first people to tell a Scranton story and we certainly won't be the last but we would like to be really good stewards of being able to preserve this moment in our ongoing history. Who are we at this moment? And make that as um, broad and beautiful of a voice as we possibly can. And we know there are approaches to recording oral histories, whether they be audio or video, and that people understand how best to put the storytellers at their ease or help bring out the memories that might be there but just need a little prompting. Were there volunteers who were conducting these interviews, or did it come down to you too? <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, we had a committee of, of folks who were both University of Scranton and community partners who were part of the part of the whole project, which was really a community-wide project. But for this particular piece of it, we also had a committee. So we did have uh, three colleagues who did join us on some of the interviews, but they were predominantly conducted by Kimberly and myself. We always talked to people, you know, beforehand. There was a lot of preparation involved, obviously referrals and recommendations to how we even got to the 25 people. But we never, you know, sat down cold, obviously. So and we always tried to make it a conversation, of course, so that people did feel comfortable. And um, because we were asking them about their lives to share with us about, you know, things that were very meaningful to them because they're they're very authentic stories. I think people will find their stories about Scranton that I that are the hard times and the good times and things that reflect all of our all of our experiences in terms of the challenges that we face, things that we've overcome, things we'd still like to see different and, and how we can come together to do that as a, again as a community but also as a nation. So there there are a wide variety of stories, but they're ones that we feel very grateful that people entrusted to us. And where were these stories told? In their familiar surroundings? No, we actually thought that we might do that originally and it ended up just kind of organically that we ended up in a studio setting like this in downtown Scranton. And so they were they were very gracious to come to us and we all sat around, but we tried to keep it even in a setting like this. We tried to keep it as much like we were sitting around a kitchen table together. That was the level of, of comfort that we had grown to have with the people in our preparation beforehand in the making them feel comfortable, making them feel like we were, you know, friends talking and sharing stories. Were there themes that emerged? You sent me a, an example today where Scranton is a second chance city, those sorts of things. Of course, it always, every conversation depends on the questions asked. You can have the same life story and depending on the questions you ask about it, it'll come out in a thousand different shades. So we really worked carefully with the committee to have a certain set of questions that it was based around. So we didn't follow it exactly, but the, they, they got the questions in advance. 
they were able to think about their ideas on these questions and um, and you know we were able to talk to them about any questions that they had and, and invite them to share or not share as they felt comfortable to and then I think you know Julie you can talk to the questions yeah I mean so so the themes will come out because every interview kind of goes along a pattern we asked them from the beginning to share with us sort of what brought them to this area whether it be generationally you know a couple of generations back or more recent and what kept them here so what is your Scranton story, in a sense? And of course, people took that question in all different ways. And again, because of the mosaic of stories, it could be people who are descendants of the coal miners. And we saw themes of that. We actually had a number of interviewees who had, you know, whose family who had injuries or fatalities in the coal mines. And we heard that coming through, you know, a grandparent. Um, so, of course, the, the legacy of industrial uh, heritage in the area and how that was passed down. So normally the, the sort of bulk of the interview is really digging into that. What are the groups and identities that they're connected to? What is sort of the, the community that they found? And what, then what also are the challenges that they faced in Scranton? And we've heard also, we heard, you know, issues of racism and discrimination. Um, LGBTQ inclusion is something that was raised. Different perspectives from young people versus older generations. People seeing change in Scranton. That's a big theme. So people who grew up here seeing the the demographic change of new communities, new immigrants, new refugees, the African-American community, of course, being here for, for a long time. So not so much that they're new to the community, but that there's been change there. We talk about the story, which is a big story, uh, of the redevelopment in downtown Scranton that took place that really dispersed the black community in downtown Scranton and the impact that that had. So that story is told in a couple different ways. But then toward the end of the interview, we always ask, what are your hopes for Scranton and what are your hopes for the nation? And we see a lot of interesting connections and commonalities and some differences, too. But that's really a wonderful part of the project, I think. I think it's interesting also how many people talked about their, you know, their their intergenerational ties and also how faith plays a role in so many lives. I think we were really, really surprised at how much that came out. And this was interfaith. This was not any one particular faith base. It was across the board how rooted people feel based on their faith. And that was really interesting. And and other people, you know, had other thoughts differently than that. But that there was a large number of that as a theme that came through. Yeah. And if I can just add on that, the last theme of the events and programs that we were running last spring was around the religious tapestry of Scranton. And it was just really fascinating. We ran that with the Lackawanna Historical Society to visit community, you know, so churches that have become Hindu temples, churches that have become the Islamic center of Scranton, communities that used to be Irish and Polish and Italian that are now Hispanic and Latino. And so it just it's just a wonderful mosaic, really. And you see it in these actual buildings that have been, you know, literally repurposed. But yeah, I think I think when you think about Scranton stories, the amount of ways in which faith, family, immigration ties into so many stories is, is really interesting. Did you hear from your interview guests about what telling these stories meant to them and what insights they didn't know they were going to get until they told these stories. Yeah, well, one of the features of the interviews was that a lot of times we had to take a tissue box out because um, there were many times where there were tearful stories. You know, again, there were stories of, of loss and of, of people coming here after experiencing loss in, in other countries. But I think, I think the, again, why we feel grateful is that people shared really authentic and meaningful stories that brought up a lot of emotion. And so what we got back from a lot of people was just their own gratitude for being able to do that, to be able to take some time to reflect on their own lives and their own, which we don't always get to do that. We don't always get to step back and think about our lives and how we, and all the people, there were many times where people talked about people who had assisted them, who had helped them, who had 
who were meaningful to them, who were role models to them. And so, you know, we can all think of people like that. And when you think of them, they often kind of, you know, bring tears to your eyes. And so, again, that's part of the gratitude that we feel of being able to kind of bring this mosaic together. So many surprising moments. I think people were surprised by their own emotion on that. And they took us with them. So then all three of us are crying, <laughs> the camera person and on and on. But this is what this is what makes the stories authentic is that, yes, there's thought put into any conversation when you go in, you think, okay, I want to talk about this. But then there's where the conversation leads you. And that was the kind of the magic that was happening during that time. And a really interesting challenge that we've had after those interviews, because the interviews themselves, and one of the things that meant the most to each of the interviewees was that in whole, it will be preserved at the Weinberg Memorial Library as a humanities resource for future generations. And that meant a lot to each person and was part of the reason why they did it. But then we also were able to take those interviews and look for the thread of conversation coming through it. And that really took a lot of a lot of deeper listening. You know, you have the, the initial interview and, it, and you're, it's inside of you and you're still in the conversation and then you go back and you listen to it and you listen to it again and you listen to it again and you're, you're trying to pull out of it the raw material. And then you realize that the raw materials are all, inter, they're connected to each other by these like threads that you can then bring forth and, and help illuminate in a more condensed fashion the, the spirit of what the person was trying to get across. So these 25 interviews that were roughly one hour in length have now all been edited down into videos that are eight to 10 minutes long. And they're really, you know, an interesting distillation of the spirit of, of each conversation. I wanted to say one more thing about what people kind of experienced or the feedback we got. That's that question about your hopes for the nation. Almost, almost across the board, people would express a lot of anxiety about where we are in terms of polarization. And it's not like we were probing people's political affiliations per se. Sometimes that comes out, but it was really across different different backgrounds that um, people are concerned about, you know, can we come together and have conversations across difference? And what is the country going to look like in 10, 20, 20, 30 years for my grandchildren? And so that was actually where a lot of emotions would come up was that question, which was really interesting to see. And you also, in addition to videotaping these conversations, had a portrait project that went along with this. Yeah, we really had wanted to thank people for taking their time, for giving, as, as Julie said, we really felt honored. And we wanted to honor them back by presenting them with a portrait of themselves, you know, with a plaque or something on it, that thanked them for taking part in this National Endowment for the Humanities project. And we worked with the uh, photographer from the university, a really wonderful man named Byron Maldonado. And as he went out and began meeting people in these locations, because we had asked them to take a portrait in a place that was very meaningful to them in the city of Scranton, he began telling us that in each of the places, people would tell him why they chose that location. And after four or five, he would just tell us why they chose it. And we looked at each other like, oh, my goodness, this in itself is a document of the city. And the idea that um, that place is really important to us as humans and that we we have experiences on this landscape in which we live and it affects us and it changes us or it comforts us and it grounds us or it inspires us. And all of these different things were happening inside of these photos and at the same time, 
Julie was approached by the Hope Horn Gallery asking if there was anything that she you know, needed relative to the, the closing and the wrap-up of Scranton's story, Our Nation's story. And they were just, it was a light bulb moment, this kind of organic growth, as you said, what, what was not intended. This was absolutely not intended. It has become a really wonderful way to, to both thank and bring together each of the interviewees and to honor them for the bravery and grace that they had in sharing their story and be able to have this photo exhibit of their portraits. And um, in that portrait exhibit, of course, will be their, you know, their name and the location that they chose, but then a brief description of why, in their own words, why did they choose that location? What does it mean to them? And then um, some quotes from their interview and the QR code for the interview itself. So it's really a neat way to kind of just be there catch the spirit of the person and then be able to log in and listen to their interview. So we can join you to see this and experience these people in that way at the Hope Horn Gallery at the university. Yes. So Friday, it's going to be <laughs> premiered a long way, a long time coming. So October 27th, we will have a panel discussion from five to six at the university that will be right before the opening of the exhibit from six to eight p.m. in Highland Hall at Hope Horn Gallery. But the panel will be a way for us to further discuss this process. So not only Kim and myself, but also as we discussed, the photographer Byron Maldonado. Also, Glynis Johns of the Black Scranton Project, because she was one of those interviewees and part of the editing and the kind of curating of the stories that you'll hear from Black Scrantonians. And then also Alejandra Marikin, who worked with us on the Hispanic Latino interviews, especially the translation, but also the interviewing and the editing and the and the bringing the, the individuals in. So that's a wonderful piece of it. And then Marianne Savakinas from the Lackawanna Historical Society. You'll see wonderful historical photos in, in the various interviews. And so they really helped us with that. But Marianne and Sarah Piccini were also part of the overall committee. What are some of the places where people chose to be physically in Scranton? One of the most meaningful to me, and all of the photos are really beautiful, but one of them is in a community garden. And a couple who survived on the community garden when they were in kind of in a really difficult situation living in a refugee camp. They talk about what it means to them to be in this garden and how, you know, garden is a chance to secure, you know, the ability to have your own food and to control your food source. But they have such a gentle way of of expressing that and, and each individually. And the photo of them together is really absolutely stunning. Other people were in their places of worship. Other people were one in her own home because that, that was so hard fought for and what meant so much to her. Others in something to do with their family. Another one with, with a statue of Dante Alighieri. There's so many reasons that people, oh, with the, the library, the public library. and There was others, um, a lot of natural beauty. So people who chose Nayog Park, McDade Park, Courthouse Square, places outside, you know, that really pick up on the natural beauty of Scranton. On top of a parking garage, because it was a juxtaposition of old Scranton and new, as you looked out over the, the rooftops. And, and the emotion that's connected to each of those places is what's really lovely and what really comes across. And you, you mentioned in the beginning that theme of a second chance town. And we did have an interviewee who is a formerly incarcerated individual. And his picture is in, in Northern Light Coffee Shop, which is, I think is a wonderful place where people come and congregate and dream about new possibilities and read and talk to their friends. And, and so, so that's a picture that also stands out to me. What about the idea of democracy as a form? Did anybody talk about democracy? Not just the anxiety, 
Well, we had that that question that is really posed in a way by the by the National Endowment for the Humanities project of how can we form a more perfect union. So sometimes that that particular question came out or it came out in different ways. We asked people what does it mean to be an American or what does it mean to be a citizen, people who have become, you know, become citizens, naturalized citizens. But I think for us one of the big if there's a, a one theme or whatever is really this idea of belonging. And you know, in order for us to have a participatory democracy, People have to be able to feel that they belong, that they can exercise their voice, that they can participate in, in a local setting, in a community, and then also that they can participate in a, in a way that means something for the national democracy as well. And so I think that idea of belonging is really a core to the project. I think people were excited to ruminate on that idea of the more perfect union. It really struck a chord, and of course it would at this point in, in our in our current climate, as far as our history goes, it's very difficult to imagine a union. But when you think back on that question about forming a perfect union, a couple people were very specific on this is our job. You know, this is not something that just happens. This is something that each of us have a job to do. And we heard that multiple times. What are you doing? What can we do? What can I do? What are we doing? So it was very much placed in our hands as as people responsible for becoming a more perfect union. And the idea of democracy was also appreciated both by people who have more recently fought to become U.S. citizens or by people that are trying to attain that. But it was also really appreciated by people who were born here. And they began to think about it more and really you heard a sense of how deeply people hold that concept of of freedom and how fragile it is and of democracy and how it, it needs a champion also. And we are that champion. And one one kind of unique theme that came out that was completely not planned, just serendipity, you know, just came out from these two interviewees who are members of the Congolese refugee community and the Bhutanese refugee community separately in their interviews when we were talking about some of the challenges for the nation, they both noticed and were troubled by unhoused individuals in Scranton and how they saw themselves as refugees in these individuals that they couldn't understand that a country so wealthy that it has so much and that celebrating 250 years could still have people, including veterans in Scranton, uh, who don't have homes and are and are homeless. And so just thinking about that idea of obviously them feeling, you know, a privilege to become an American citizen, but then also thinking about, again, how far do we still have to go to make sure that economic inequality and other inequities are, are solved and that we can really be be able to all flourish in this community and in the larger country. And the word they used was heartbroken. Across cultures, this this is heartbreaking to me to see this. I am heartbroken. Is there a website where people can go to learn more about all this remarkable work you've been doing? So the whole project is on www.scranton.edu forward slash Scranton story. And so by around October 27th, all these uh, interviews will be available. They'll be on a YouTube channel that the University of Scranton has. So we will definitely buy that time. And then I also want to mention that the exhibit is up for two weeks. So it runs from October 27th through November 17th. So that will be a chance. And also on First Friday, it will be open as well. So we invite people to come throughout that time. But then, yes, of course, online, they can find, they'll be able to find all the videos and all the interviews and a little more background, again, of all the, the partners and the contributors to the project. It really is a good primer for understanding your own community 
we tend to go through our lives in our own paths and we don't recognize how many other lives and how many other paths there are. And that was one of the, the benefits for me participating in that was how much more richly I perceive my own city now and how much more life I see is is existing in it in all of these different rivulets of, of spirit and life and experiences. And um, I, I just, I feel rejuvenated. I feel reconnected to an area that I already loved. And I feel, I feel much more hopeful for the future, even though you look at the challenges as every one of these interviewees did, and you see the mountain that we have to climb. But when you realize that this is the spirit inside of each of us, um, it really does give you enormous hope. Kimberly Crafton, Oral Histories Coordinator, and Julie Schumacher-Cohen, Project Director, speaking with us about Scranton's story, Our Nation's Story, which is a multi-year examination funded by the National Endowment for the Humanities, carried out in Scranton with multiple partners. They have described to us the premiere of Scranton's stories, oral history interviews and photographs, with a panel discussion and exhibition opening tomorrow, Friday, October 27th, at 5 p.m. That's the panel discussion at Brennan Hall at 5 o'clock. And then the oral history's premiere and the opening of the photo exhibition with a public reception will be held in Highland Hall at 6 o'clock and run from 6 to 8 p.m. The exhibit runs from October 27th through November 17th. The event is free and open to the public. For more information on the web, scranton.edu slash scranton story scranton.edu slash scranton story scranton stories plural oral history interviews and photographs a panel discussion and exhibition opening will be held friday october 27th at 5 p.m that's tomorrow afternoon at the university of scranton at brennan hall for the panel discussion at five and then the oral history's premiere and the opening of the photo exhibition with a public reception in Highland Hall from 6 to 8 p.m. The show running from October 27th through November 17th at the Hope Horn Gallery. The event is free and open to the public. For more information, scranton.edu slash scranton story. <laughs>